HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We do more varieties and flavors of cheese than anywhere else on earth. By pushing the boundaries of what cheese can and should be, find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food, a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. You might think it's obvious that the story of food and cookbooks is central to understanding our culture and history, but it was not always so. Our storyteller today is Barbara Haber, a towering figure in making sure that food and women were recognized as critical to the study of American culture. And if you don't yet know who she is, you'll be amazed. Let's hear from Barbara. I am going to ask you some questions about just how the great and amazing Barbara Haber came to be. Having just gotten off the phone this morning with a young woman that I described you as sort of the the godmother of culinary writings as American social history, but not only American social history. Um, how did that come to be? Well, let's begin with my craving for and love for cookbooks, which I read. The horrible old cliche is people would run up and say, I read cookbooks as if they were novels. I don't like to say that. I read cookbooks as cookbooks. People do tell me that all the time. All the time. I don't understand it, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) It's as though it's something strange about reading a cookbook through and getting pleasure of it. And so they compare it to the novels. And my point is that cookbooks are their own thing, and they're wonderful containers of not just uh, as manuals for how to do a recipe, how to cook, but they have a setting. They have a plot very often. Sometimes they have characters. They have a voice. That's why some of the great cookbooks are great, because you can identify the author immediately from the way it's set up and what the stories are. And I saw all that as valuable, as a personal kind of hobby and collection. And then I became a professional collector of cookbooks, which is a long story. 
I'm interested in that story. And I just want to roll it back a little bit. To begin with, you were a librarian. And to begin with, you were a little girl growing up in the middle of America. Right. But I wasn't a librarian to begin with. I was an English major to begin with, with a master's degree from the University of Chicago in literature to begin with. (laughs) And then uh, my husband and I moved to the Boston area where academics come in two by two, uh, whereas I had no problem getting a teaching job in the Middle West. It was going to be more of a challenge in the Boston area because there were so many intellectuals (laughs) arriving and around. And I happened to be reading, I think it was the Ladies' Home Journal. It must have been in the 70s. And there was a little article saying that the United States needed librarians. And it was like a one-year degree. And I thought to myself, I love books. This could be a, a, a solution. Instead of my waiting to get one or two teaching jobs, teaching freshman English at Boston University, which I had been doing, maybe I can get another professional degree. I didn't even know where a library school was. It turns out to be it was at Simmons College. And I called them up, and they sent me an application. And because I had other graduate work, I was in line to receive a full scholarship to go to library school. But I had to do it in a year. But I also got credit for some of my other courses, so I was able to do it in, in, I think, a year in the summer, I think normally it took more than that. I can't remember. But anyway, to my astonishment, I loved library school. And one of the elective courses that I happened to take was on the social history library because the teacher was a distinguished German intellectual who was a social historian himself. And he would always bring examples of social history when he was making the point in whatever his lecture was. And so he would say, for instance, if you were responsible for building a social history collection and you had the whole world of documents to choose from, what would you buy for the library? And I thought, it's like crystal ball gazing. If you know what's going on with popular culture today, how do you think historians in the future will need to know this event, this incident? And I thought, this is what I want to do. And I got out of library school. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, the people I met there, the courses, I think it's a little known secret how much librarians love their work. It's very, uh, I have never met anybody uh, who, who, who worked within the Harvard system that I met that wasn't just all excited and thrilled at what they were doing. And this was especially true at the Schlesinger Library, where I had my whole career, my one and only library job, was at the Arthur and Elizabeth Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America. And I started there on the eve of the Women's Studies Movement. And Just a year? What year? Um, approximately. About 1971 or, or so, approximately. And the director at the time was a wonderful woman named Janet James, who sat me down in the most beautiful room and told me about the library. And she was one of just a handful of female graduate students who worked with Arthur Schlesinger, the senior 
father of the Arthur Schlesinger Jr. that most people know about. And he was like the father of social history. That history wasn't just about great white men. It was about immigrants, and it was about people of color. He was saying this in the 20s. And Janet James learned and was allowed to learn women's history under his auspices. Uh, And she talked to me about what women's history was. We were sitting in this beautiful room with bookshelves. The library had recently been renovated. It shared the building with what was then the Bunting Institute, now the Radcliffe Institute. Uh, And we went on and on, and I asked questions, and she was explaining, and it was enthralling. It was a special class in women's history. And then at the end of the whole interview, and that's what it was, I looked around and I saw that all the books in the room were cookbooks. And I said, you haven't said anything about them. And she just sort of sort of laughed. She says, well, it's kind of our hobby. Harvard has a gifts and exchange program. And when they get gifts from a donor, uh, they will split them up and send them to one of the 40 uh, research libraries that Harvard has. And Somebody gave them a lot of books, and they included uh, expensive, rare cookbooks. And we said we would take them because we had a new building and we had lots of empty shelves. But if you work here, we're not adding to the collection. But I thought to myself, hmm, (laughs) this is really interesting. Uh, So I got the job. We had fallen in love, and I wasn't surprised that I got the job. And at the time, it was just part-time. And immediately, the women's studies movement, the feminist movement, the women's lib, another expression I don't like, women's liberation movement came along. And I suddenly had a dynamic situation on my hands. At that time, everybody was reading the same book or article, and there were a lot of little cheap little essays on newsprint that were available. I was buying all that stuff for the library. And by then, Janet James had moved on to teaching at Boston College, and we had a new director, a lovely woman, who patted me on the arm at one time and said, now, not too much duplication, dear, when I was buying all this stuff. And and it was all cheap, and I said, don't worry, you know, we didn't have a big budget. But I was just doing all that stuff. And so, you know, I really learned American women's history on the job, And I did a book. I I did a kind of bibliography on all the women's history books that were available. I would take home bushels of them and read them and write about them and bring them back and take another shopping bag full and so on. So I really, through my reading and through my experience at the library, learned that subject and understood what gender really meant and what it was doing in terms of our culture, any culture really. But I was biding my time. This was not the time to start augmenting the cookbook collection. It would have been hard to do. But everybody knew that the library had some cookbooks. And it was and still is an institution that accepts gifts, especially if they contain rare first editions. And if they don't, if they're just standard collections, they would be sold every year at a book sale and so on. So that there was always a profile of the library as being interested in food and food history. But I wasn't moving on that at the moment. Next, I'm going to tell a Julia Child story. Julia was a neighbor, and she had already given her records to the library, what we call the manuscript collection, which would be her correspondence, her drafts of things, 
She was highly organized, and the beautiful collection came along. The Julia Child collection is at the Schlesinger. And once we got Julia's, then they went for MFK Fisher and several other collections of women involved in the food world arrived at the Schlesinger Library. Finally, when I could see the stirrings of serious people interested in food history, and one of the first signs was the establishment of the Boston Area Culinary Friends. And this was a group of mostly amateurs, people from all walks of life, not academics is the point I'm making, who would gather and meet at the library once a month to talk about some topic that has to do with food and its history. One guy, I remember we sat maybe eight people in the summertime in a circle on the Radcliffe lawn talking about pots and how he made ceramic stuff. And we listened to all the intricacies of his pot making. Another person was interested in the history of ice cream, and we heard about that. It was all very eclectic. But what was so interesting was how intense people were uh, and how thrilled they were to meet like-minded people. That's what stuck with me. And then such groups emerged in Michigan, and Southern California, in Washington, you know, several groups which are going strong to this day. And I thought, something's afoot. <laughs> and I talked to the director of the library, and I said, I would really like to take advantage, for the sake of the library, of what I see going on, and I'd like to organize a culinary friends of the library. And she made it possible. You, you had to get permission, of course, and we organized the Friends it of... It is Harvard afterwards. Afterwards. <laughs> Harvard's a corporation. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I got the permission and had to run it, but I also had a bank account. I had a bank account number so that I was able to raise money and stash it. And eventually I was able to acquire book funds from people. You know, I'd go to food events and talk to people about what I was doing informally at dinner. And I remember a woman sitting next to me, and she said, how much would you like? And I got a $10,000 gift, you know, that way, which was a book fund. So I suddenly had funds because I wasn't allowed to use them from the regular book fund, which had to be women's history books. And this is where Julia came in. Julia, who was a neighbor, she lived on Irving Street at the time, was so excited that the culinary part of the library was being augmented. And she was in the habit of, she was always being visited by people. She was so open and so friendly. And journalists would always come to see her because Julia was always a story. She's so charming and so much fun. And I don't know, some of them might have expected a lavish lunch, but what they got was corned beef hash from a can and a fried egg or a tuna fish sandwich. You know? She was so un deliciously unpretentious uh, in all ways and including food. So she would send the journalists on to me. And it's because it was Harvard again. You know, what was a cookbook collection doing at Harvard? And I would show them around and take them into the vault and talk to them about food history and its implications and why I thought it was important. And at the time, I was working on a book that had to do with gender and food. And that really has become and still is my specialty. Anyway, 
so there were all these stories that came out about the library. And then more people gave donations and more people gave money. And my programs were terrific. I did two a year because they were popular. And I was good at program planning. I could come up with an idea. I had Anthony Bourdain once. I had to track him down. I had gone to his, at the time he was a chef at a restaurant in New York. He wasn't there, but I left a note with my card. He answered and he came and he did a wonderful program at Radcliffe. And I had a full house and this was quite an auditorium that I used. I remember those. They were Mondays, right? That was different. Ah. No, these were twice a year, Sunday afternoons, when the the space I needed, which was free of charge, it's Harvard, was not in use. The Mondays were first Mondays, and those were specifically for professional cooks to come and know about the library and to come when we did programs. Chris Schlesinger who was interested because the, the library was named for his grandparents, was helpful. And he brought in a lot of other young chefs, young at the time chefs, who helped me do programming and organizing and all of those. So we were doing both things at the same time. And Julia kept on sending people over and enhancing the reputation of the library. And it was my job to come through by doing all these programs and building up the collection, either by donation or by purchases. So all these things were happening at the same time. And through all of this, not only did your network include all of these uh, sort of like people like Julia Child and local chefs, but it kept growing and growing and became sort of a recognized part of American studies. Exactly, exactly. And I'm very proud that the connection of food and gender, I'm quite identified with being the mother of that thing. MIT, several years ago, did a symposium on food and gender, and I was invited, and I had no idea that I'd be getting all these uh, encomia. Is that the word? Encomium is the singular. People going. It is not a word I know. Okay. (laughs) I think it exists. Uh, People were going on about, you know, my work as the originator of food and gender studies. You know, my book is very much about that. And it was sort of news to me. And it was just a wonderful experience for me to not just to, to glow, but to listen to what scholars, young scholars were doing and the breadth of the dissertations and the things coming out on people working very diligently and very seriously and excitedly on food and gender topics. So that, I think, is my legacy and what I'm especially really, really proud of. This was not easy personally for me at the library because the most of the staff were feminist-identified and thought of the library as a feminist library, which I thought was not right, that women's history encompasses more than feminism. And the bias was that that food was kind of ghettoizing women or limiting them? Or? Well, it was a received idea. You know, barefoot in the kitchen, that's where women belong. Uh, and refusing to understand how enlightening it can be if you know about food and how it's prepared and know about culture and know about who did what. Uh, the question I ask, who cooked, who served, who ate? And look at the implications of those questions in any given period or geographic area, and you learn something about history. They were closed off to that, so that by establishing the culinary friends, 
Although I certainly kept up with the women's history obligations that I was there for, there wasn't a book that came out that I wasn't buying for the library. I was responsible for the printed materials, not the unpublished manuscripts, although I attracted a lot of unpublished manuscripts. Um, but it was the printed material that I was responsible for. And they saw it as taking away from the real duty of the library. And I saw that as just sort of closed-minded, and that food history was part of women's history. I mean, for me, the idea that food history wouldn't have been a legitimate topic, and a legitimate topic with or without gender, when most of the human race is all about trying to find sufficient nutrition to be able to create generation after generation. Exactly. And I have a point of view that People used to beat up when I was growing up as a very serious person on people like Martha Stewart, glorifying fancy housewifery, Betty Friedan and on, and the idea that there could be pleasure, joy, respect in doing things well um, in a domestic environment was dismissed. And I have never thought that was fair because there have been a whole lot of people who find their lives made happier feel glorified, feel effective, because the things that they can control within their own domestic sphere, they do it with great excellence. Exactly. And to deprive them of that respect and of that self-respect has always seemed to me to be incredibly smug. Well, and it's not either or, you know. it's Women's history encompasses domestic life and its history. There's just no question about that. Anyway. Although I might feel differently if you told me that your focus had been on doing the laundry. I might... <laughs> I could make that argument, too. And so, but I want to return to the idea of, because since you are one of the foremost experts on food and gender, what are your top-line observations about the impact of gender and food? We'll be back with Barbara Haber in a minute to delve a little more into her view on the relationship between gender and food. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin, the state of cheese, makes half of the nation's specialty cheese and wins more awards than any other state or country. Our heritage and traditions, master cheesemaker program, and the American propensity for innovation all put Wisconsin on the cutting wedge of cheesemaking. With over 600 varieties of cheese to choose from and 5,500 national and international awards and counting, get ready to turn your refrigerator into a trophy case. Enjoying a Wisconsin cheese is basically like winning a gold medal in culinary achievement. Set your mind at cheese. When you bite into a wedge of Wisconsin Wonderful, you know it is made with the ultimate skill and passion possible. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. And we are back with Barbara Haber. Because since you are one of the foremost experts on food and gender, what are your top-line observations about the impact of gender and food? (laughs) I mean, and top line may be the, um, the most unfair possible way to, to put it, but 
we don't have time for a whole book. So <laughs> well, just just sort of keep your eyes open and notice. I mean, look what's going on uh, with the Me Too movement in, in terms of professional kitchens and the role of women in those kitchens and and how they've been taken advantage of. And now finally they're speaking. We sort of knew about some of these guys all along and nobody said anything. And now it's happening. So that opens up the whole question of how did this happen? Why is it? And I have done some writing on on the role of men who wanted to write. They weren't writing for the professional kitchen. Their aspirations were not to be big deal chefs, as we think of them today. They wanted to write cookbooks. But in order for a man to write a home cooking book, he had to make sure he wasn't feeling or thought of or emasculated in any kind of way. And so most of the, a lot of those books, I collect them, make fun of women in order for them to project themselves as better than women. They are artists and women are scientists, domestic scientists. A few names? I don't have them at the tip of my tongue. I really don't. Uh, They were writing in the 50s and uh, I can supply them later. Uh, but there's a there's a whole collection of such books, and uh, a lot of men got interested. Uh, a man named Frederick, his last name, got interested in in uh, quote gourmet writing when prohibition ended. So that the challenge was how to pair wine with food, and you could write about that and sell books that do that. And he could show off his erudition and his knowledge of food and all of that in a new area that had been unexplored because of prohibition that had taken place in the 20s and early part of the 30s in this country. So I think that's one of my favorite topics, how sex role stereotyping certainly trapped women but it trapped men as well. So they all talk about barbecuing, cooking over fire as being the male prerogative, and it still is seen as that way to a large extent because it was daring and dangerous. <laughs> you know, those kinds of... Like butchering. Yeah, yeah. You know, the tough stuff. Digging the holes for big barbecues or doing seaside clam bakes would be another example of cooking experience seen as a male prerogative. So if you look at the stereotypes and, and think about who's doing what and why, again, that question, who's cooking, who's serving, who's eating, it opens up your mind to noticing things. So it's just, it's really about noticing things. That strikes me as the perfect title for a book, who's cooking, who's eating. <laughs> who's serving. Yes. Yeah. Right? Fascinating. Fascinating. And what's your what's your guess? Over the last 10 years or so, women have been rising up in stature within the professional food community. The idea of men cooking at home has been rising up. Um, do you see us moving towards a, a different future than our past? Absolutely. What the big change that I've noticed is how women have been freed up to do what they want to do. They might hit glass ceilings and all of that kind of stuff, but they don't feel obliged to be at home. They're torn. They want to be, but on the other hand, they want to be working, you know, so you get other kinds of problems. But that's that's certainly happening. And what I'm noticing just within my own family is I have sons and they cook. And sometimes they do most of the cooking. 
because they have wives who are working, who are traveling sometimes, who are busy. And they find, because they have demanding jobs, that cooking becomes a pleasure and a release. And uh, because it's instant gratification, you know, it has a beginning, a middle, and end when you cook a dish. And it's all done in a fast kind of way. And they see that, they get it. And they like the performance after sitting all day in front of a computer, which most people who work these days seem to be doing. You were famously good friends with a lot of the Illuminati of the food world. You've been umpty ump James Beard prizes, boards, everything else. After all of this, how would you, and you were clearly a good friend of Julia Child's, How do you think television has impacted the food world? Well, she was the start of it, of course. Julia had a unique personality. And I don't think, frankly, anybody has come along who's been as good and entertaining and uh, such a teacher. She really was first and foremost a teacher. She never called herself a chef. She was called the French chef. She knew who she was. Television has, and, and I, I suppose streaming on, on computers as well, there's so much food material now. And I watch very little of it. I don't like the competitions. I don't like the topics that are so sort of f- fractured. People given a basket of crazy ingredients and they have to do something with it. You know, other people could find that amusing. I find it tiresome. The one show I do watch that I enjoy is the uh, British baking series, That somehow grabs me, because on the surface, there aren't any grand prizes. They get a bowl at the end, I think. But in reality, they get TV shows (laughs) in England as well. But you, you have the sense in watching it that it's, you know, real people, honest people. They help each other. There certainly is a competition. And the judges are good. You know, everybody thinks... Paul Hollywood is is sexy and fun to listen to and knows his stuff. So I like him and that show, but I don't watch the other stuff, even though it's extremely popular. And I'm told that little kids and babies like to watch it because, again, it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and you see a final product, and it's sort of soul-satisfying. And they're making cakes. And they're making cakes. <laughs> and, and American or people, human beings love stories. And that's a story. Making a dish is a story. Thank you, Barbara. Just amazing. What a wonderful perspective you give us on how food creates and keeps community. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And thank you to our team, producer Rachel Gottbaum and sound engineer and composer Michael Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at heritageradionetwork.org or by visiting our website, letstalkaboutfood.com or find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. 